Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It's time to read the tarot cards of the global economy for 2020 and look into the stars and figure out what the world will bring. Joining us now, Bart Van Ark, Executive Vice President and Chief Economist for the Conference Board. Bart, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I jest, but you did put together a 2020 outlook for the world economy, and you have some uh, perhaps better than expected news, mainly we'll avoid a recession. Is that right? That's right. I think and perhaps we picked the right day for this, uh, given, uh, you know, pretty positive news we yeah, get this, on the trade disputes as well as on Brexit, right? So so this might be the day to actually say maybe we can actually avoid a global recession. But, you know, again, things may change next week. Let's hope it won't. But well, more seriously, we, we do think that there is reason to believe that there's a very plausible scenario that we're really hitting the low point in the global economy right now. And that really has to do with the very rapid decline that we've been seeing industrial production around the world. And that's probably going to continue even into quarter four. But we think it will eventually bottom out, particularly because China is taking out a lot of excessive overcapacity, but also begins to stimulate the economy a little bit not to drop off further. But then, uh, you know, perhaps even more important, the consumers and the labor markets pretty much around the world are still so strong that we believe that they will really pull the economy along in 2020. So, Bart, uh, the, you're exactly right. Uh, the consumer has been the strong part of this economy relative to uh, manufacturing and business investment. But we have seen some signs that uh, employment growth is slowing. Um, is that a concern of yours? No, it, of course it is. And, and you know, again, I mean, the, the gap between uh, consumer confidence and business confidence is unusually large at the moment. So, you know, why is the consumer hanging in there? Well, because this job market has been so strong, they have been seeing their wages increasing and their incomes improving. And frankly, that's true around the world. Um, and we see that reflected in consumer confidence. We, we just released earlier this week our global consumer confidence index at the conference board. And, you know, there, there we actually are showing that pretty much around the world, we still see very high levels of, uh, of consumer confidence. Now, employment is a very important uh, leading economic indicator underlying this, and we do see some leveling off here. But again, unemployment rates are very low in the U.S., in Europe, in Japan, in many emerging markets. Uh, demand for labor is still very strong. So, so we can't really see at the moment, this is still very much in positive territory, and you would expect, I think, nothing else at this point, that the, the rapid growth that we've been seeing in employment over the past couple of uh, quarters is beginning to slow down a little bit. So no, we're not, we don't have a major concern about the numbers we're seeing right now. Another interesting projection uh, that you ha have here is that the decline in industrial production will ease and eventually bottom out. How far away are we from that? Yeah, it's very important that we have the diagnosis around this clear. We think that a lot of this decline in industrial production started already early in 2018 in China. Uh, and China, as I referred to earlier, had this huge amount of overcapacity. And, and China essentially stopped continuing to support it, particularly in their state-owned enterprises. And, you know, in the first instance, we didn't feel that in 2018 because it happened sort of upstream in supply chains. But then later on in the year, you know, multinationals started to feel this. Uh, and certainly into 2019, the countries that are most exposed, like, you know, Japan and Germany, really started to feel the pain as this worked itself with the global supply chain. A lot of excessive overcapacity 
over capacity has been taken out. Uh, China doesn't does want to make a, a you know a transition towards a more higher value added uh, manufacturing sector. You know, go back to the to the trade disputes and, and discussions that we're currently having. They're beginning to see some results of that. So so you know even the latest numbers for China are giving us a little bit more comfort that this may begin to to do bottom out a little. On top of that, you know, provided that the trade disputes indeed go a little bit to the background, and the fact that technology and innovation are creating some more productivity growth, that's all good signs for for industrial production. That's why we believe it will begin to bottom out over the next couple of months. So Bart, if the U.S. economy does uh, manage to avoid a recession in 2020, as you're uh, uh, forecasting, is there, uh, how do you view the concern that maybe this economy is just going to be uh, lower for longer, slower growth for longer, one and a half to two percent for the foreseeable future? Is that something you think is for, is possible, likely? Yeah, that's a great point, Paul, because, you know, we should be careful not to mix up the fact that we'll see some recovery in 2020 with the fact that in the longer term, we are looking at a slowing economy in most of the mature economies, including the United States. Sort of this sort of long-term growth rate underlying the economy in the U.S. is probably around 2%, and that's quite a bit weaker than what we had in the previous decade. A lot of that has to do with gradually, lowing, uh, gradually slowing supply of labor. There's just more people retiring and fewer people entering the labor force. Uh, we're not really making that up rapidly enough by things like immigration or speeding up uh, participation in some segments of the population. So, so that slowing labor supply is a major driver of that. Now, you can make up for that by productivity growth, but that has been dismal for a long time. Now, we see, we see some good signs, as I just mentioned earlier, that productivity is beginning to pick up a little bit. Some of that may just have been cyclical related to the strong growth in 2017 and 18. But it might be that, indeed, you know, technology, digital transformation is beginning to get results in companies. And that would help us right. to keep growth in the United States still at you know above 2% in the longer term. And that would probably be good enough to support and sustain growth going forward. Bart Van Ark, thank you so much for joining us. Bart is Executive Vice President and Chief Economist for the Conference Board. Oil is up uh, today once again. Brent crude up about 1.3% to $59.85 per barrel. That's in response to uh, some news that Iran said that missile struck one of its tankers in the Red Sea, which is, would be the latest in a series of attacks on oil infrastructure in the region that have roiled energy markets of late. To get a sense of what is going on, we welcome Will Kennedy. Will is a managing editor covering all things energy and commodities for Bloomberg. Joins us from London. So, Will, what's the latest on this tanker attack uh, in the Red Sea. So uh, an Iranian tanker with about 1 million barrels of crude oil was sailing north uh, through the Red Sea. Um, It was attacked in the early hour this morning. uh, The National Iranian Tanker Company, which owns the ship, says two missiles hit it. They're not saying exactly where they came from, although uh, one one stage said they probably came from Saudi Arabia, although later they decided to walk that back. Um, As we understand it, the uh, tanker shed a little bit of... uh, crude oil into the Red Sea, but that situation is now under control and the tanker has turned around and is sailing back towards the Persian Gulf. The fact that these attacks keep happening is a bit concerning and sort of points to the escalating tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Are you at all surprised that oil prices aren't up more? I mean, this takes us back, I think, to the attack we saw almost a month ago 
on the Abcake crude processing plant in Saudi Arabia, at the very heart of the Saudi oil industry, 5 million barrels a day. And when that got hit by uh, some missile strikes, uh, possibly sponsored by Iran, we saw oil uh, react as you'd expect. It rose 13 14% in one day. But what's been really interesting about the event is that we've given up all those gains and more, i.e. there is no, that, that attack has produced no risk premium in the market. And I think what it really speaks to is the overriding concern of the oil market is that there's just too much oil around. And that situation is only going to get worse next year where most analysts see a mismatch between supply and demand. The International Energy Agency says early next year they expect global inventories to build more than a million barrels a day. And I think the market's much more focused on that and and the same concerns of everyone else about the trade war and the slowing US economy than they are on geopolitics. So, Will, one of the things I think these series of attacks in the Middle East uh, oil infrastructure have shown those of us who don't follow the supply side in the Middle East uh, oil supply that closely is just maybe how vulnerable uh, the supply chain is. What is the thinking within energy circles about can anything be done to make it more secure? It's very difficult. I mean, tankers are not armed. There's no real way to protect them. Uh, They have to sail close to coastlines at times. So, you know, they are easily targeted. But this is not the first time that we've seen this. In the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, there was a so-called tanker war where uh, tankers were repeatedly attacked uh, as they sailed through the Persian Gulf. Of course, you know, we've seen tankers uh, attacked more recently off Yemen by al-Qaeda um, in, in uh, you know, 10 years ago or so. So it has something that becomes a problem every now and again. Um, and no, there's very little you can do. The only thing you can do is to uh, try and make sure that no, one's, no one uh, wants to uh, attack them from the shore to, to, to de- you know, de-escalate the issues behind the attacks. Here's here's one thing that I, I'm, I'm struggling to understand today. Not only do we have this attack on supply, but also there is better than expected trade development. So why isn't that giving people a little bit more uh, hope when it comes to demand for oil and thus sending pri- uh, prices even higher? Well, that's true. And you might have expected to see a better day. But we also had a report this morning from the International Energy Agency that, again, lopped a little bit off its demand forecast for next year. And you know, it's to go back to this idea that at the moment, the supply balance, demand balances next year don't look good. And that's going to put a lot of focus as we go towards the end of the year on OPEC's policy reaction. Will Saudi Arabia have to cut more production? Is an OPEC in a position to do that or not? And, you know, until we get some really firm uh, policy uh, clarity from OPEC plus that they're going to do what it takes to bring the market into what they call balance, i.e. support prices up above $60 a barrel, I think the the uh, oil market may struggle to, to really get a lot higher. Will Kennedy, thank you so much for being with us. Will Kennedy, uh, Bloomberg News Managing Editor for Energy and Commodities, talking about that attack on the Iranian oil tanker. It just is uh, an interesting idea that even as we have those tensions rising, people don't really care that much. It's-
Not only are we getting positive discussion out of Washington, but Boris Johnson and the European Union evidently are working well together. They have entered the tunnel, the cone of secrecy, <laughs> as they uh, try to hash out a Brexit deal. And evidently things are going pretty well. That lack of detail is sending the uh, pound to its biggest two-day rally on a percentage basis since December 2008. Yeah, this and, has been a, a just incredibly slow process, but a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps here as we get down to that, you know, October 31st uh, date, which is really the hard, hard date, I think. Meanwhile, we are seeing the more happy the talk gets, uh, the less there is a bid for gold. Uh, we have gold today uh, down sharply 1.2% lower. Joining us now, Frank Holmes, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors. Gold had been in the sweet spot. A lot of investors saying it was headed straight to $1,600. Uh, currently is at 1000 $475 and some change. I'm wondering what it will take to prop the prices back up, given the fact that we are not done with the uncertainties and yet people still seeing a time to sell. Well, there's two big drivers for the demand for gold, and I'm characterizing them as the fear trade and the love trade. And what's interesting is the love trade is 60% of all demand for gold and really is highly correlated, if you use the Bloomberg functions, to the GDP per capita of Chindia, affectionately known as China and India, which is 40% of the world's population. So with their rising GDP per income, their consumption of gold, gold jewelry, 24-karat gold jewelry, has been stellar. The fear trade is what's really been driving gold this year, and that's negative real interest rates. And uh, the unprecedented around the globe slow down with PMIs. Uh, it'll take a while before I get, I get those to turn and be sustainable. So I, I think that uh, we're living in an era where governments still have not got the, with the program that we need fiscal stimulus by streamlining all the regulations. Uh, it's all now by negative real interest rates and printing money. So this makes gold a very attractive asset class. And there's actually peak gold supply coming from mines. There's been no major discoveries. And so I think that gold is in a very sort of unique secular trend again. So, Frank, we're in the month of October, and that's historically been a very volatile month for the equity markets. Is that an argument to maybe increase allocations to gold here? No, I don't think so. I think that the, you have to take the thought process of the largest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater, Ray Dalio's philosophy of having 6 to 10% in gold. And you rebalance it, and uh, it has it, it, the volatility of the stock market is only one sort of component to it. I think what's really important is is real is, is what's called real interest rates, and uh, and I think that the world is going to continue to try to stimulate uh, with negative real interest rates, and this is bullish for gold. Now, gold had a spectacular run. It was up three standard deviations. We like to look at it over 60 trading days. It's now back to almost at par. Now with this correction today, uh, we're just back to where it's a very healthy way to take a look at entering into gold. So you like gold. Where do you think it goes by the end of, say, the next six months? What price? Um, you know, the, the, the DNA of volatility of gold is, is now in over a 10-day rolling period. The S&P is 3%. And that means 70% of the time it's non-event for gold to go up, but down 2%, whereas the S&P is 3%. So I think that, uh, when you're asked by year end, I think that gold could easily be $1,700. I think that, um, and it could also correct the $100 from here. Uh, that's sort of the normal trading range. 
it's going to be much more important is what Europe is doing and Japan is doing on this negative real interest rate scenario. And I don't see anything of fiscal policy changes and regulations to say we're going to have a, a complete sea change in what we're, how we're going to try to grow our economy. I want to shift gears a little bit. I know that not only do you focus on uh, precious metals, but you also focus on the airline industry uh, with your ETF that trades as jets on the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, Delta shares have been doing pretty poorly after they said that they're seeing rising costs and slowing revenue growth. Do you think that the outlook has materially deteriorated for the airline industry? No, I don't. You know, so much of this sentiment just recently, just prior to this conversation we're having, uh, we talked about uh, the, the pound having one of the biggest rallies. So much is sentiment driven right now. And so they say costs are rising, so sentiment immediately sells off. But there's, it's very difficult to build an airport. The, the, the barriers to entry are extremely high. And, uh, and when you take a look at global travel and, and tourism, one of the things I just noted when I was in New York Stock Exchange yesterday, 50% of the tourists are Chinese tourists. I was in Salzburg last week and uh, the same thing there. So I think that you're seeing uh, global tourism is growing much faster out of the middle class of China and India, in particular China. Uh, it was always led by America, and now there's three uh, entities that are dominating it. And it's just difficult to get the, the building of these new airports, and, and uh, I think is a very bullish scenario. And the ancillary fees, 10 years ago, were $3 billion a year, where they charge for a bag or change your ticket. Uh, I can go on with the whole list of them. They're now push, They're going to push through $100 billion next year. Uh, so the cost of fuel is not as significant because they're making so much money from these ancillary fees. And Delta yesterday talked about their Amex, uh, American Express uh, contract. Well, that, that was almost $4 billion in revenue last year, and I think it'd be $7 billion over the next year. So we look at American Airlines, what they're making from their credit card. Um, so I think that the, the airlines industry is buying the dips. Do I buy ETFs or I just go out and buy a basket of these uh, airline stocks, global stocks? You go out and buy his ETF. What do you think he's going to say? Come on, Paul. You buy jets. Not the football team. You buy jets because it diversifies your risk. And we also have airports in there that you know, like um, the airport for uh, Bangkok is public. Uh, uh, Some of the airports in Mexico are public. Uh, Istanbul is public. Uh, Beijing is public. So you get uh, uh, these airports as a mixture, but they have to have a quant model of very high returns on invested capital to make the Jets ETF. Uh, so I remain very, very bullish, and I think that Boeing will, in the next next year, will, the, the worst will be behind this quarter, and uh, and I think that will then turn around and also help Southwest Airlines and, and American Airlines uh, increase their uh, their their um, their routes. Right. Frank Holmes, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts on both the gold uh, sector as well as the uh, global airlines business. Frank Holmes is the CEO and chief investment officer for U.S. Global Investors. They are based in San Antonio, Texas. Well, it is certainly a risk on day today, a great way to end the week for equity. Bulls all took was a little bit of positive news on the geopolitical front to help us get a sense of kind of how to think about this market going forward. We welcome Anwiti Bahuguna, 
Anwidi is a senior portfolio manager and head of multi-asset strategy for Columbia Threadneedle Investments, joining us uh, on the phone from Boston. Anwidi, thanks so much for joining us. What do you make of today's action in the market? Um, it's certainly optimistic, Paul. Sounds like uh, progress on several fronts, uh, on the trade front, on the Brexit. But I will say that I haven't seen details yet of either. It's really just... Uh, optimistic sounds of a trade deal. I haven't really seen anything. Optimistic sounds. Good enough for a lot of people out there, evidently, to uh, try to cash in. I mean, given the fact that we've got zero details, uh, or at least to give you any tangible sense that this is actually going to go through, would you be selling this rally? We are actually underweight in our portfolios. So, yes, it's um, definitely not something that I would trade client money on rumors alone at this point. We need to see what is actually agreed upon, whether it's uh, temporary or another one of those 10 or so head fakes we have seen in the last one year, Lisa. So, Anwidi, when you think about your positioning, again, you mentioned your underweight global uh, equities. Is that Give us a sense of kind of how you weight that or what drives that. Is it valuation? Is it slowing global economic growth? Or is it, uh, you know, kind of the, the global macro uncertainty trade and so on and so forth? So it's uh, several of those factors. Uh, valuation is one component. Fundamentals is really the driving component of how we think about the world. And on that front, we have seen nothing but downgrades to global growth outlook this entire year. Whether you look at what the bond market's done, whether you look at how equity markets have performed outside of the U.S., we have seen nothing but downgrades to growth for the entire year. Now, it's better priced in in some markets than others uh, but what I would what would what would really matter to us is how does the growth outlook change going forward and trade and brexit are a component of that um, we'll wait to see the details of all those uh, but it won't be just a day's sentiment uh, change for example. Uh, I was looking at, at some of your calls. You also are saying that it's a good time to maintain treasury allocations just because of some of the bearishness in uh, the economic outlook going forward. I, I guess, what would it take for you to reverse that call? Right. So that is important on a multi-asset portfolios since we take risks in equities, commodities to have some hedges and treasuries have been excellent hedge this entire year, Lisa. The thing that would matter to me on the Treasury front is beginning of what you are seeing now a little bit in the bond market. I would like to see the front end of the curve stabilize a little. So the front end of the curve has been signaling this entire year downgrades to um, growth expectations. And if that stabilizes, and I don't expect a whole lot of movement up in the front end, maybe a little bit, that would be a sign that maybe markets beginning to price out the recession fear. The back end is very much driven by term premium. That's driven by so many factors other than just the U.S. economy. But it will be very good to see this, you know, one day of disinversion that we have seen in the curve uh, become a little more permanent. So, Anwidi, one of the stories that Lisa and I have been following this morning is this news from the Federal Reserve that it will begin buying about $60 billion of Treasury bills per month. Um, how do you view that move? Is this a stealth QE on your, from your perspective, or is it, in fact, kind of what they're suggesting, which is, 
you know, something to just to kind of stabilize the, the short end of the curve? So I, I agree with Fred's description of this. I think it's very much a plumbing uh, mechanism to stabilize the funding on the short end. I definitely don't view it as stealth QE. Um, remember, Paul, this was a very standard operation for the Fed before the crisis. It's simply helping and aiding uh, movement of assets in the banking system, very much a function of the Fed, which is the lender of the last resort. One other call that you have is underweight emerging market stocks in particular. And I'm wondering what it would take for you to reverse that call, given the fact that you do have central bank easing around the world, which typically is positive for emerging market assets. Right. So that was very much driven by this manufacturing slowdown, or uh, I would even go as far as to call it a manufacturing recession we have seen in the last nine months or so. We are beginning to see some signs of improvement there, Lisa. We have seen in the month of September the uh, manufacturing PMIs for emerging markets stabilize. Plus, there is central bank easing, as you pointed out. Um, that would be a driver for us. Continuous movement in that direction would be a driver for us to change our view on emerging markets. How about Western Europe? We, you know, we, I'm just looking at Germany with its negative rates and uh, slowing economy in, in Western Europe. Uh, uncertainty continues with Brexit. Is it just too risky for you to, or for anyone to really maybe increase an allocation to Europe? Well, we are actually overweight Europe and have been for a while. Um, Europe has that central bank support that Lisa spoke about. And there is um, Europe is the one market where for the past few years, a lot of pessimism have been pri priced in. So our valuation component had come in handy to look at European equity markets and we are overweight Europe. Just going forward, do you have a sense of how far away from the bottom we are in this manufacturing downturn? Um, it's early days, yes. I am, I am you know, mildly optimistic, Lisa. It looks like things are stabilizing, you know, very much a function of the sentiment-driven downdraft that we saw the last two months, I would say. So last two months have been particularly volatile as uh, there have been movements driven very much more by sentiments other than data. So data had been weakening all year round, but last two months have been constant bombardment of markets whipping around in one direction or the other by the trade news worsening, the Brexit news worsening, yeah. then maybe going back and getting bit, uh, better a little bit. So we'd love to see some stabilization on that front. Anwiti Bahugana, thank you so much for being with us. Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Multi-Asset Strategy at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, joining us uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.